Welcome our speaker host, Brady, to introduce our main speaker, Solis, tonight. Hello, my name is Brady, and I am an alcoholic. Hey, Brady! We love you, Brady! Lots and lots and lots! My sobriety date is July 11th of 2017. And my home group is the Hillcrest group here in Springfield. So yeah, we could go. I was um, I was asked to uh, be the host for our speaker tonight, and um, what did you say? forms over there. Uh, so I, inside I said no, but I, of course I said yes, because I was told you don't say no to AA, and I was, um, I have to be willing. Um, and uh, uh, so David, um, you know, he, he said to me, okay, you know, here, here's his name, here's his number, you know, go ahead and reach out to him. And, um, you know, this is where I got to get to the, the rigorous honesty part. Like, I'm staring at this name for like, like, could you know, like 10 minutes. I'm just like, so, 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 <laughs> like, so like Googling, like, how do you pronounce? <laughs> so I devised this like really great plan, right? So it's like, all right, I'll just text him. It's like, hey, here's my number. Give me a call. <laughs> so he can call me and leave a voicemail and leave, hopefully like, he'll, he'll leave his name. <laughs> so that way, you know, so like I know because like, God forbid, like I like call him first and say his name wrong. And then like all of a sudden it's like, oh, this dude said my name wrong. I'm like going to have a resentment towards him. So <laughs> here, I, I, here I am, I have not even like communicated once with this man. And I'm already thinking he's like got a resentment towards me. And he just, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I need to be here. Very nice uh, too much. But, uh, you know, in all honesty, when it comes down to it, you know, I've, I've truly met uh, you know, one of the most nicest guys uh, you can ever meet in the program, um, if not the entire state of Texas. And um, you know, he's just uh, he's just been amazing. And the fact that he's got you know, you know, 35 years of sobriety, 35 years, and you know, it's just like that's let's be honest, that's longer than most of us have been alive on this earth. I mean, really, and it's just like how does you know, really, how does one do that? And it's, and and it's just doing doing the same thing he does today, what he did on day one, and that's just applying this program, you know, to his life, uh, you know, applying the principles, living into the daily life, you know, just in his, you know, personal life, and you know, becoming involved in service, and you know, he's he does things like take six newcomers. <laughs> into a van, drives them cross country, and it's like, hey guys, let's go to Missouri to Mosky Pop and let's catch some sobriety. Yeah. That's what 
that's what we got to do to stay sober, not just today, but for every day. We got to carry this message to others like he does, because that's, that's where the magic happens in sobriety. It happens in here, and it happens out there, and it happens on those car rides. It happens in those late talk, late night coffee talks, you know, those meetings after the meetings and before the meetings and in between. You know, that's where the magic of this program happens, and that's where, you know, where we find each other and a new freedom and a new happiness and a new life. Woo! And I, I love it, and I love everything about this man and about this program, and I want everybody to give this man a big Musket Paul welcome all the way from Austin, Texas. My name is Solis Ruff. I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is January 1st, 1988. Careful, Lindsay doesn't do that anymore, but I do. You've been doing to be here tonight. You have no idea. I mean, when the committee called and said, would you come and spend time with us and make a bunch of new friends and have an awesome time, who would say no to that? Who? Right? So yes, nobody gets my name right, and it's okay. I mean, first time's always wrong, and I just tell them it rhymes with police. Can you remember that? <laughs> and alcoholics can't always remember that, so they never have a hard time the second time. So I am from Austin, Texas. My home group is the Lambda Live and Let Live group on Sunday morning, 11 o'clock. If you're ever in North Austin on a Sunday morning, please come by and see us. We'd be happy to uh, host you. I want to thank the committee uh, and and everybody who stood up. I'm quite simply, service is love made visible, and they have done that this weekend in bringing you all of this much fun and all the speakers and all the hospitality suite and everything that's gone on this weekend and so they've demonstrated for you what it looks like and that's really important because that is the heart of Alcoholics Anonymous so thank you for the entire committee I also want to thank my host um, Brady who's been awesome uh, I normally like to uh, bring the uh, host a uh, gift and I was literally like on my way out the door with a car van full of alcoholics and I was like, oh, my, my gift. So I got some new plates coming. So I just literally took the license plate off my car. We all signed the back of it so that you would know that you have friends in Texas because it says Texas on it. And that way you will always know that you have a place to visit in Austin, Texas. grimy. I should have cleaned it first, but I literally just took it off my car. So there you go. So I have a rather unorthodox method of delivering my uh, story, and uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. For my uh, friends who are kind of like me, ADHD, you know, I do much better with pictures. Uh, so 
we are going to be presenting a slideshow, and we're going to put that right up here so you all can see that, and that way you can follow along with uh, my story. So here we go. So the very first slide, it's hard to tell that's me because I've got a baseball mitt up right in front of my face. And, and here's the deal, right? Uh, I was seven years old in that picture, and I, oh, right there it is. I was fabulous, even at seven years old, I was fabulous. The problem with that is that uh, my my dad didn't think it was so fabulous. Um, and he decided that we were going to play a lot more football, we were going to play a lot more baseball, and we were going to... We were going to find a way to get this fabulousness out of me. And so uh, he would say, I'm going to throw this baseball at your face, and you're going to learn to put that mitt up to protect yourself. And I would go in from our uh, catch and practices uh, crying, and I'll never forget the Sunday he said, uh, he didn't say, go get your mitt. I thought, he forgot. This is awesome. Right? And then the second weekend came by and went, and I thought, oh, my God, he forgot two weeks in a row. And then the third weekend, he... Uh, turned to my uh, younger brother and said, go get your mitt. And I thought in that moment, he's ashamed of me. He's embarrassed by me. I failed him. And that was the nature of our relationship. Um, I've heard so many people in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, especially uh, when they're at the podium, talk about how they felt different, how they didn't feel like other people, how they felt like, I don't know, somehow the rule book of life passed them by and they just felt awkward. And so I want to tell you that that is definitely my story as long as everybody else's. And if nothing else that you get out of this talk tonight, what I hope you get is that we are far more alike than we are different, right? I may not have drank in your bars. You probably would not have wanted to drink in mine. But I'm telling you, when it comes to the disease of alcoholism, I like the effect produced by alcohol. It's a phenomenon of craving that kicks in, and I don't know what happens. I can't explain it to you, but all of a sudden, my favorite word is more. <laughs> the other thing I need to tell you is that we are in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, we have a singleness of purpose. However, like was pointed out by last night's speaker, um, we all know we did a lot of other things, right? So I don't care if your version came in a pill, a powder, a leaf, a syringe. A drink is a drink is a drink. I love me some alcohol, but I love me some lumpy alcohol too. And the lumpy alcohol helped me drink more alcohol a lot longer and sped things up. And I love me some lumpy alcohol. So, but just know that when I'm talking about alcohol up here, I'm talking about alcohol in all its forms. So you can replace that word if you need to with something else, right? But I honor singleness of purpose by mentioning it as alcohol. So if I can do this without setting off the microphone too much. So that's me in high school. And I will be honest with you, I took advantage of Photoshop. I was not the head cheerleader of the Del Campbell High School class of 1981. I would like to paint a vision for you that's surrounded by adoring friends, and that's not what it was like. Here's the real pictures. That's me being stuffed into a locker. Those were my feet sticking up outside of that trash can because they put me in their head first. Those were my eyes peeking around a corner looking for the bullies of school trying to get to the next class without getting beat up. I was hating life. Um, at 12 years old, I took a bunch of my mother's alcohol and um, Valium and mixed it up in a blender and put it in a peanut butter jar and kept it in my sock drawer and knew that if things ever got too bad, I could just drink that concoction and it would be over. 
So even from the age of 12, I was already thinking about suicide. And so when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and they all said, to drink is to die, and I'd be like, take your scary AA ghost story somewhere else because I am not interested and that is not frightening to me, right? Uh, of course, what made it even more difficult was that I'm surrounded by people in Alcoholics Anonymous in Detroit, Michigan. They can't be said any other way. They're old. I mean, over 30. I mean, come on. Church basements and bad coffee. Clearly, this is your future. But I like the nightlife, and I've got to boogie. And I've got people out there who are dying to see me. Some of them don't even know it yet. And there's no way at 20, I'm hanging out here with y'all. That's not going to happen, right? So already, I had set up myself for problems with Alcoholics Anonymous because willingness to go to any links was not part of the package. Let me tell you why I even went to that first meeting. I went to that first meeting not because I thought I was an alcoholic. I went to that first meeting because the U.S. Navy had a desire for me to stop drinking. <laughs> My family had a desire for me to stop drinking. The Lake Tahoe Police Department had a, a desire for me to stop drinking. I did not have a desire to stop drinking because I did not think I was an alcoholic. And in the beginning, my sponsor went to great lengths to um, to be supportive and understanding, but I was a challenge. I was a challenge because I didn't think I was an alcoholic. So, um, okay, so here's me in a Navy outfit, and I am, in that picture, twirling the rifle like it is the last baton on Earth. <laughs> I found out I could be a cheerleader in the Navy in the color guard, marching up and down the field, waving the flags and having a good time. And I was loving life and I liked my career. Um, I was in an aircraft squadron, uh, P3s, these planes that fly over the ocean for some reason. And I really loved my career and I really had nothing else going for me. But I had a problem. I had a problem that existed before I ever joined the Navy. From the very first drink, I drank to blackout. Almost every time I would drink to blackout. And when I drank to blackout, I did something really weird. I would go and lay in the middle of the street because I'd get that suicidal thought of like, y'all don't care about me. Nobody loves me. Who cares anyway? I'm going to go lay in the middle of the street until I get run over by a car and who cares? Then you'll all be sorry, right? And so uh, there's me laying in the middle of the street. <laughs> you know, my friends would be like, where is he at? He was just here. Oh, well, you know where he's at. <laughs> he's in the street. And they go and drag me back in the bar every time and so I realized in short order that I might have a problem because what was happening was I went to my first bar the rec room it's this dark dank sawdust on the floor smelling like urine bar that I loved because it looked like I felt inside you know it was falling down it was crusty and I walked in and uh, over the course of time of going there seven nights a week, I started to get this reception like, woo, here he comes, Elise, you know, we, here comes the party, we're going to have a good time, right? But because alcohol is a, is a progressive disease over any considerable period, it gets worse, never better. And that included my reception. It got less enthusiastic. It went from, woo, here comes Elise, the party's begun, to... Here she comes. <laughs> here she comes. Hang on to your drinks, your drugs, your wallets, and your husbands, because here she comes. <laughs> and you get that reflection in other people's eyes when you know you're not welcome, right? Or they make a beeline for you because you owe them money, right? 
So I realized I had a problem. That is the Capitol Dome of Sacramento, California, my hometown. Sacramento was the problem. I needed to get my alcohol and lumpy alcohol on someplace else. And I had no education, I had no way of doing that, so I did what I thought was a good idea. I joined the United States Navy. Now this solved the problem, but it created a whole street more, right? Which is sort of how I do things. I create a problem by solving a problem, and it never ends, right? So now my problem is that I can't quite make it to work on time. Now, when I was cashiering at 7-Eleven or flipping burgers at McDonald's, that was not a big deal. But what I discovered, and as I was sharing with Brady earlier, is I found out they will not hold a ship for you if you don't show up on time. They will not hold an airplane for you if you do not show up. And I got charged with missing ship's movement. Can you believe that? I'm like, it was right here when I left it last night, and now it's gone. And so I got to call my command, and then they make arrangements to get you back to base, and they take it out of your paycheck, and then you have to go see the captain because you're charged with missing ship's movement. And so, one too many times, I was late. And they said, you're going to level one rehab, which was like outpatient therapy. You're sitting in a circle with an alcohol and drug counselor, you know, and I'm just like, this is such crap. Because I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I thought, you know what? I bet the Navy thinks that I'm gay, and they want me out of the Navy. They're going to use this alcohol thing to do it. That's how they're going to do it. That's what's going on. I know what's going on, right? And so the alcohol and drug counselor is like, you don't think you're an alcoholic? I'm like, no. He's like, well, why do you think you're here? And I was like, I'm here because I have back problems. Namely, everyone's on it. If they get off it, I would be just fine. <laughs> I was pretty sure my chief petty officer had it out for me, and I just was like, this is all a conspiracy. I'm not interested. <laughs> and so I show up late yet again. And this time my um, chief petty officer is in the, um, well, here he is, standing there in the parking lot, just <laughs> waiting for me, right? And he goes, why are you late today? And I was like, I had a blowout on the way to work. I'm thinking, oh my God, that's such a good lie, because I was wearing my dress whites, which weren't white, because I had slept in my uniform the night before, and it was kind of grimy. So I was like, I look like I just changed the tire. This is awesome. I'm such a good liar. Wow. And so he goes, wow, that's terrible. I was like, it is terrible. And he said, great, let's open up your trunk. I want to see your blown tire. Oh. Yeah, I know. I get that feeling of my heart falling into my stomach. So we go around to the back of my car and open it up, and here's what he sees. A blown tire, because I'm a procrastinating alcoholic. I had a blowout like a year earlier. Never got <laughs> I know. Don't tell me procrastination is a character defect. It worked for me that day, girl. It did. And he said, I don't care what your excuse is tomorrow. You are late one more time. You're going to see the captain, and I don't care if he takes a strike or kicks you out. I am not protecting you anymore. And I want you to know that I heard him that way in a way that I hadn't heard him before. And I thought, okay, I can't be late tomorrow. Maybe next week, maybe next month, but not tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to be the first one here. In fact, I'm going to be early. I'm going to be right at my desk, and he's going to come in. He's going to see that I know he means business. Everyone's going to get to see how committed I am to this job. I don't want to lose my career in the Navy. Tomorrow, tomorrow, right? In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about how we have an inability to recall the pain and suffering of a few weeks or a few months ago. Mine lasted seven and a half hours. Because it was only seven and a half hours later, I was like, that's why I'm going to go to the bar and just have one tonight. Right? And then those lights come up at 2 a.m. and you're like, how did this happen? 
right? So I'm rushing home because I know I'm going to be late tomorrow if I don't get myself to bed. And I'm driving way too fast for the snowy conditions of Michigan. And my car goes into a slide. And I close my eyes as I hit the garage button uh, door opener. And here's what happens. That's my car in the garage perfectly sideways. It slid into the garage sideways. Like, not that much room on either side, you know? And I, I, I open my eyes, I'm like, why am I looking at the wall of the garage? And then I'm like, oh, shoot, right? Like, and I'm the Scarlet O'Hara drinking. It's like, tomorrow's another day. I can't deal with this right now. I'll deal with it tomorrow, right? I can never deal with things right now. I'll deal with it tomorrow. And I get up the next morning late, and I go out into the garage, and I'm like, whoa! My next thought is like, this is a great excuse. I bet no one's ever used this. So I call my boss and I'm like, my car's in the garage sideways. He comes over and looks at it and he goes, you're going to level two rehab. And level two rehab was not so much fun. Now I'm confined to base. And they got these things on the wall at the AA meeting called the 12 steps, which I had already nicknamed the pool rules because I was not having any of them. <laughs> I will fast forward to my last drink. Those are fireworks and people reveling because it's New Year's Eve. And the reason it's kind of a cloudy picture is because that's shot through the back seat of a police car. And I come out of my blackout, like I always do. Um, I've got gravel on my face because I know I've been laying in the middle of the street like I always do. <laughs> and then I have to ask the officer why I'm being arrested which is also a sign that you might be an alcoholic if you have to ask. <laughs> and when he gets finished telling me the charges that are they're arresting me for, I'm like, that's not me. I wouldn't do that. But the truth was I couldn't tell you what I had been doing for the last several hours. And I was reduced to th two thoughts, just two. These handcuffs are tight, and this crap has got to stop. So during the period of level two rehab, this... Uh, I had this occurrence with the United States Navy. That's me in a pair of handcuffs. I got arrested and charged with homosexuality. Enter gasp here. <gasps> okay, so <laughs> had I been wearing pearls that day, I'd have been forced to clutch them because I could not believe they just did that to me. Right? So um, yes, it was a crime up until just about 10 years ago. And so um, uh, I went through an interrogation process where they made me take off my clothes to show I wasn't wearing women's underwear and what I like to tell people in my home group it was just my luck that day I was not <laughs> maybe today you know. <laughs> and so I made it through that process I stayed in the Navy for 12 years, but um, they told me at that point that I was going to have to get a card signed off at meetings probably for the rest of my career. And so the, the way the Navy uh, alcohol and drug counselor said is you're going to have to take this piece of paper to 12-step meetings, you're going to have to get it signed off. And I'm like, 12-step meetings? Any 12-step meetings? He's like, any 12-step meetings? I was like, awesome. I marched myself across the hall to the Al-Anon meeting. So now I'm in Al-Anon. Doing my corset, drinking red wine. I spent some time in that other program, and I'm there for like two and a half years, and they asked me to speak at a conference. It's an AA conference with an Al-Anon speaker, right? So 
I go to Toronto Gratitude 1987, and I've never spoken at a conference before, and that conference is probably twice as big. There was like 400 people there. And I get nervous. I do what's perfectly normal for me. I stop at the hotel bar on the way to the podium and do some shots. Woo! Right? And they got a dais just like we got here, right? So they got me seated next to the AA speaker. And she leans over and she goes, Oh, honey, is that tequila? And I lean back at her and I said, Oh, honey, is that jealousy? So the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says that more than any other, the alcoholic leads a double life. Oh, I love that phrase and I hate that phrase. I love that phrase because it's true. I hate the phrase because double implies two lives. I probably could have kept going if I had just two lives, right? I had a lot of lives going on, right? I'm on this weapons load team and we are running drills every afternoon with a stopwatch to get this ordinance loaded onto this aircraft and we're trying to run the time down as fast as we can and I keep looking at my watch but it's not because I care about this ordinance. I am a drag performer at a gay cabaret downtown and I got makeup to put on. Can we hear this along? I got nighttime friends. I can't introduce my daytime friends. I got lumpy alcohol friends over here. I cannot introduce to the liquid alcohol friends. I got a lot of lives going on. And it's like juggling plates. Mm -hmm. And I keep adding plates. Here's the problem. We have this wonderful phrase on our chip. If you're carrying your chip, you can look at it anytime. It says, to thine own self be true. What does that mean? Right? I got too many selves to be true. It says, to thine own self, not to thine own selves be true. You know? I got a lot of selves. <laughs> How am I going to do this? Right? So, Grady O'Hare was the speaker that night, and here's, here's how God works in my life, right? So, I'm living up in Detroit, Michigan. I go up to Toronto, Canada, and this AA speaker is from Sacramento, California, my hometown. And she was one of these foul-mouthed, loud, in-your-face lesbians, right, who, in retrospect, it's a wonder I got to keep my face that night, you know? Because she just laughed at me when I said, is that jealousy? And then she goes... You said in your story that you're coming uh, to Sacramento. And I said, yeah, I, I re-enlisted for four more years and I got orders to California. So she said, well, when you do, come visit us at the North Hall Group of Alcoholics Anonymous because we are saving a seat for you. It's got your name on it. <laughs> I was like, I know what that means. <laughs> but the night after that blurry picture through the back of the patrol car was taken, remember that one? Fireworks, all that. I walk in to the North Hall group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and here's how else God works for me. It's a beginner's meeting, right? And the beginner's meeting there that night is an ask it basket format. So they got a panel of old timers up at the front, and they ask everybody to write out any question you ever wanted to know about Alcoholics Anonymous and fold it up and put it in the basket, and then they take turns reading the questions out loud. And I'm in the back, and I'm trying to avoid Grady's look. And they're like, is there any newcomers? Like, my name's Elise, I'm an alcoholic. It's like, what? My, my name's Elise, I'm an alcoholic. And she looks up, she's like, oh, you. <laughs> you, you could shut the F up now. You just said everything you know. You don't know any more than what you just told us that you're an alcoholic, so shut up and listen. Again, if I was wearing pearls, I'd have been forced to clutch them because I could not believe she just said that to me. I was like, what finishing school did she flunk out of? And we never talked to newcomers in Allen on that way. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
I have to pause for a sip of beverage. I'm just so cracking up because I asked for a Red Bull and my Texas friends know me. They brought me like a, a tall boy. I'm like, any bigger and you'd have to bring it in a keg. I love this. Thank you. Yeah, everything's bigger there. Okay. <laughs> that had to come from the Oklahoma crowd. I gotta say, um, when we went to Okiepaw this year, and they they do the sobriety countdown, you know, they rip off their shirts and run around and and then tonight. It happened again. I was like, this must be an Oklahoma thing. They just rip off their shirts. Yeah. There is a God. So, <laughs> exactly. So this picture is me on the phone. Now, because I'm speaking to a YPOC crowd, I have to explain this picture. See, that's an old mobile phone. It, it was in a glass box on every other corner, and you put a quarter in, and then you can make a phone call. And my sponsor said I had to call him every day for 90 days. And I was like, oh my god, that's a lot of quarters. So the call would go like this. I'd call, and I'd say, call him because I'm supposed to check in. And he'd say, great, how you doing? I'd say, okay. And he'd say, just okay? And I'm like, just okay. He'd say, have you been to a meeting yet today? I'm like, not yet. And he'd say, you might want to do that. And I'd say, I know. Click. Drop another quarter. Did you just hang up on me? He's like, yeah, because you know. Call me when you don't know. Click. Stop hanging up on me. He's like, stop knowing. The disease of alcoholism is one of thinking that you know the solution. And why would you seek a solution if you know the answer? Click. Okay, I don't know. That's what I want to hear. There's no shame in not knowing. There's no shame in that. And that's really important to hear. Because we walk in here with bravado, right? Because we're scared. And I'm not going to show anybody I'm scared. Never, right? In fact, in American culture, it's way more permissible for you to show anger and puff your chest than it is to show that you're scared. Right? And the reading that we had at the beginning of the meeting today that talked about um, the theme of this conference speaks to fear, right? And when I did my fourth step, I learned a lot about fear. I learned that anger comes from fear. My sponsor said, okay, so you are on the freeway and somebody comes in and cuts you right off. They cut you off so hard that you have to slam on your brakes. What do you do? I'm like, I hump the horn, I flip them off. Duh. <laughs> Don't you? He's like, I believe that. He said, however, before you honked the horn and you flipped them off, half a dozen things happened. You gasped for air. Your foot went from the accelerator to the brake. Your arms stiffened up. You maybe jerked the wheel to the left or the right a little bit. And then you went to anger so fast that you don't even know that they've scared you. They have scared you. It's like when somebody jumps out from behind a tree and says, boo, yeah, you socked them, but not before you scream. <laughs> And it happens so instantaneously that we don't even know we're angry because we're afraid, right? So he said, so if anger comes from fear, where does fear come from? Instincts. If you read the first page in the fourth step, it doesn't mention the word resentment once, but it mentions instincts half a dozen times on the first page of the fourth step. So he said, instincts are this involuntary response to an external stimulus. If I flick at your eyeball, you don't have to wonder, like, is it going to hit it? Is it going to hurt? Is, you just blink and you pull your head back. Your body takes over. 
And we are ingrained with instincts like sex, social, and security, and those instincts dominate us, tyrannize us. Every case of emotional disturbance can be traced to a case of misdirected instinct. That's what the book says. And I had to really look at that. So he had me add 10 extra columns. 10! <laughs> 10! 10 extra columns to my fourth step. The seven deadly sins, pride, greed, lust, sloth, envy, all those. And then three instincts of sex, social, and security. And he made me a check mark on what applied. And wouldn't you know it, when we got finished with that fourth step, pride all the way down the page. Anger, all the way down the page. And sometimes sex instinct, sometimes security instinct, but social instinct, all the way down the page. It turns out, I'm really quite consumed with what other people think of me. Now this could have come from the trauma of being in high school and knowing that everybody had it out for me. Or it could just be that I'm an alcoholic. I don't want to be the, in the party or at the party, I want to be the life of the party. I don't want you to like me, I want you to adore me, right? And if there's a hundred people in the room and 99 of them love me and there's one that doesn't, who do I focus on? The one that doesn't. What's wrong with you? Right? I'm awesome. And so this is a soul sickness. And it's like an app that's running in the background all the time. Even when I walk into meetings, it's like, do they like me? Do they not like me? Do they think I'm fat? Do they think I'm thin? Do they think I'm cute? Do they think I'm ugly? Do they think I dress well? Do they think I dress like a dork? Do they think I'm intelligent? Do they think I'm an idiot? It won't shut up. Alcohol was the only thing that shut it up. And I don't have that anymore. So I guess I better find a new way. And that turns out to be turning my life and my will, my thoughts and my actions over to the care of God. Whew, that's a tall order, right? I can't go through with it. And yet I can. This is a cookie. <laughs> this represents a conversation I had with my sponsor in early recovery, I said, I'm pretty sure I have more problems than alcohol. He's like, really, what are these extra problems? I'm like, terminal loneliness, I need a relationship. <laughs> if I had a relationship, I'd be okay. <laughs> He's like, wow, you got that 30-day chip yet? I'm like, almost, don't hate. <laughs> and he said, Solis, it's just like this. God is baking the perfect cookie for you in the form of a man, and he'll be presented at the perfect place at the perfect time under the perfect circumstances. But until then, it's your responsibility to practice these 12 steps in patience. And I'm just like, really? Like, is this in the promises somewhere? I don't remember. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, just keep coming back, right? <laughs> and I watch my 30-day come and go, and my 60-day and then my 90 day, and then my six month chip, and then my nine month chip, and then my one year chip, and I'm like, where the F is my cookie? <laughs> right? <laughs> and he's like, here's the deal, Solis. God is not a pimp. I mean, <laughs> he's not going to produce a man just because you demand one. And this ain't Domino's Pizza, it ain't going to be delivered in 20 minutes or less. <laughs> Again, we're back to the disease of thinking you know, right? Thinking you know what's best for you, what you need, what you want, right? He goes, here's, here's, here's a, some, a little something, something for you. You're jumping up and down in front of this oven going, hurry, 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 and it hasn't even occurred to you that it might be getting hot in here. Maybe you're on the inside of that glass looking out rather than outside looking in. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, maybe you're somebody's cookie who's not quite ready yet to be presented at the perfect place, at the perfect, I know, right, my, what, 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 
right? And then he said, nowhere in the literature does it say holy matrimony or happily ever after. What it says is that we can live a useful and purposeful life. And guess what? You don't need a hymn to do that. You can do that on your own, right? And I was like, oh, okay. So we got to a place. Well, first let me tell you, I was still not happy being an alcoholic. So I was like, ended up in the San Jose Fellowship. And God bless the San Jose Fellowship. Everybody that got that was sober when I was getting sober has already gotten their A pass to heaven because I was so impossible. I would just glare at people. I just did not want to be part of the fellowship. I was now stuck in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was not feeling it, right? So at one particular meeting, this is my old home group. You can see there's like 200 people there, right? And they have a podium like this and they call on you and then you walk up to the podium and you share, right? So I walked up and I said, my name is Elise. I'm an alcoholic. And this is my last meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they're all like, I was like, no, really, stop it. I don't want to be one of those alcoholics that y'all talk about at Denny's afterwards. Like, I'm telling you in advance that I am leaving here. But before I leave, I'm going to tell you why. And I just started going down the road and calling people out. I was like, you talk about service. I've never seen you pick up a coffee cup. <laughs> you talk about greeting the newcomers. You're talking about the Cubans. I've never seen you shake the hand of an ugly one. I just kept going down the row. I got to poor Doug H. I ran out of things to say. I said, dude, your hair is so perfect. You carry the message of good grooming. I think you're all a bunch of effing sheep. I think if this old timer over here walked off the cl cliff, the rest of it would just follow him blindly, and I am not following. Good night. <laughs> if you've ever been to meetings in the Bay Area of California, when someone finishes sharing, they clap. <laughs> and that night they cheered. The Bad Sister section gave me a standing ovation. <laughs> I hit you with both barrels and you were still standing. I unloaded the last of my ammunition. I had nothing left to give. There was no ounce of anger that I could express more than what I had just done. And what I really wanted was you all to say, you're way too sick for us, you can't be here, because then I could have left. But instead, there was a long line that formed after the meeting of people to give me hugs. And my sponsor was in that line, so he said, ooh, okay, all right, girl. So we're all a bunch of effing sheep? Well, keep coming back. <laughs> he said, I am going to help you with your own analogy. If we are a group of sheep and the wolf is representative of alcohol, which one do you think he's going to pick off? The one who's trying to get away from the flock. I suggest you plant your butt in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous where it's safest and the wolf can't get you. Also in that line was um, this name, man named Roger with 50 years of sobriety. I don't like Roger. <laughs> I didn't like Roger because my first service commitment was sweeping the floor after the meeting, which I really liked that service commitment because everybody had already left the meeting and I wasn't forced to go to the meeting after the meeting because I had a chore after the meeting, which was to clean up. And I could do that by myself. But Roger was always sitting there reading his pickbook after the meeting, and I'd have to ask him to lift his feet so I could sweep under his chair. And he would say, hey, kid, do you want to know the secret to staying sober? And I'd say, yeah, Roger. He'd say, you're not ready. <laughs> Sometimes I just hate old timers. <laughs> but that night he was in that line, and he got up to me and he said, I think you're ready. <laughs> he was like, the secret to staying sober in Alcoholics Anonymous is just this. 
And please, I implore you, if you're new or you're a chronic relapser like I was, this is the secret to staying sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Let us help you. That's it. Cease fighting everything and everyone. Stop making believe like you know what you're talking about or that you have the answers because nobody whose life is effing awesome ends up in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Mine wasn't, and that's why I'm here, right? And I am so glad that I'm here, right? So my sponsor said we we're going to do a sane, sound, sex ideal. This was after 18 months of sobriety. And so he said, take this piece of paper and write down everything you ever wanted in a man. Everything. I was like, I'm needing two pieces of paper. <laughs> he said, good. I want it to be an exhaustive list. Everything you ever wanted. <laughs> so we get together and he starts looking at this list, laughing and crossing things off. And I said, stop. You said that was my list and I could put whatever I wanted on there. And he's like, I did. Let's look at some of these things. Let's look at this first one here. Oh, you'd like him to be over six feet tall. I was like, yeah. Is that like a lot to ask? What? And he's like, let me ask you, are you over six feet tall? I was like, well, no. He goes, yeah. Asking something in exchange for nothing is the very definition of selfishness. We're going to go through this list and we're going to scratch off everything you can't deliver in return. Oh, yeah, girl. We chopped the crap out of that list. Was, oh, yeah, we're left with boring things like kind, considerate, you know. We're looking at this one, and he's like, oh, monogamous. <laughs> That's a good one. Have you ever been monogamous in any relationship you've ever been in? I was like, well, not yet. And he's like, yeah, it's a yet. No. <laughs> then he puts a check mark next to every single one, and he's like, a little check box, and he's like, this is your list. You are now ready to date. And you're going to ask somebody out in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was like, again, the pearls. I could have clutched them, because I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Have you not seen the men in here? It's like a big scratch and dent sale. Like, <laughs> if you're looking for a husband in Alcoholics Anonymous, you're shopping in the irregular section. Like, <laughs> this is not happening. And the truth was, I was dating active using alcoholics. Yeah, that's what I, we do, right? So he says, maybe you'll meet one that's on a parallel spiritual path. I was like, oh, God. All right. Him. He goes, get over there and ask him. So I was like, okay. I come back. And he's like, did you ask him? I was like, no. He's like, why not? It's like, I, I just don't know if I'm ready for sex. <laughs> sex? Who said anything about sex? I said dating. Do you know what dating is? I was like, I think. He's like, I don't think. <laughs> dating is merely gathering information. You are not holding auditions for a life partner. You're not conducting interviews for a soulmate. You're simply asking out someone to coffee. Don't you do that right now with your friends before the meeting? It's the same thing. You take someone to coffee, you spend no more than one hour. You'll take more than one hour because you're selfish. But you're at the end of one hour of asking them questions that get to the answers you're looking for on this list of yours, you excuse yourself. 
You each go home to your respective residences, a point you always seem to forget. <laughs> and then the next morning when you're doing your prayer and meditation, you ask God, did I gather enough information? You're only going to get one or two answers. Either I gather more information than I ever wanted or needed, or I'd like more information. So he said, either way, you pick up the phone, you call the person. In the first scenario, you say, thank you for coffee yesterday. I really had a good time. I feel like I made a new friend in AA. I'll see you in a meeting sometime. Bye. Right? <laughs> You've left no ambiguity about what it is, what it was, where it's going. Or you call and you say, I really enjoyed coffee yesterday. That was a lot of fun. Do you think you're free in a couple of weeks to do that again? I'm like, a couple of weeks. He's like, yeah, you want more information, and you want it now, preferably horizontally, but that's not how this is going to go. <laughs> if this is a lifelong errand, what is two weeks? <clears throat> so we went out on that date, and uh, as I was telling Brady earlier, it was the worst date I've ever been on. <laughs> it really was. We had nothing in common. We had nothing in common. It was going awful. Um, we were sitting in a restaurant, and uh, I was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is a disaster. So he asked me if I had any hobbies, and I told him I was trying to get my marksmanship ribbon in the Navy, which meant I had to tear down this rifle and put it back together and shoot the target in a specified amount of time. And he was like, I don't like guns. I was like, oh, what are you working on? What's your hobby? And he started telling me about this um, watercolor technique, because he had just graduated uh, from the university with a degree in fine arts, which of course, maybe yawn. I was just like, why would you study fine art? And then he started telling me about the watercolor technique, and I was thinking, why would anybody get this excited over watercolors? Literally, because he's like, you put the pen in a huge thing, and, and he's talking louder, and he's talking faster. And in that moment, I was like, oh my god, I think that's passion. That's one of the things on my list. Now, here's the thing. I put passion, because that sounds really good, right? But I had never really witnessed it. I'd only ever seen obsession. They're not the same thing. And so when I witnessed passion really up close for the first time, it was the cutest thing I'd ever seen. It was like, oh my god, you could get excited about something that doesn't involve killing yourself? What? <laughs> I started to pay attention. And over the coming weeks, he started checking off all the boxes. And I was like, this is not good, right? <laughs> I go to my sponsor after he checked that last box. And I was like, he checked all the boxes. He's like, congratulations. It sounds like you found one. And I was like, it cannot be him. He was like, why can't it not be him? I was like, we have nothing in common. He's a smoker. I'm a non-smoker. He's a vegan. I'm a carnivore. He's one political party. I'm another political party. We have nothing in common. And he said, well, great. It's like a fish that's too small. Throw it back. But we're done. You don't get to bring up the subject of relationships ever again. Because God delivered what you asked for. It was in your handwriting. And then you get it. And just like a spoiled child, you say, no, that's not the toy I want. Because that's how alcoholics are. I know that's the back of us, but that's me standing there next to the cookie. <laughs> We're standing before a judge, and for a change, I'm not being called the defendant. <laughs> and I'm being asked if I take this cookie to be my lawfully wedded husband. <laughs> and a few months ago, we celebrated 33 years together.
absolutely clapped because gay relationships are like dog years. That's a long time. <laughs> a long time. Um, so, my mother, the alcoholic, got sober. That was a, something I hadn't expected. When we talk about attraction rather than promotion, right? Rather than going around telling everybody they ought to get sober or telling them what a great life I'm living and they should try and live a great life too, right? I just show up at family events and I live my sober life. And um, my mother decides to go to AA. And um, that was great. It was great because we started a new relationship. We now spoke the same language. And I think my siblings were a little put off because my mom and I became so close, right? And we're on this drive through Central Valley, uh, California, and uh, my mother by this time has had a stroke. And she's like, I've got something to tell you, but I don't know how to tell you. And she starts crying, and then she says, okay, I think I'm ready to tell you. I have this thing called an amends I'm supposed to do. And I'm thinking, oh, God, here we go. And she says, I know. Um, I was gone all the time. My mother was an alcoholic. And she left us all the time. And I was the oldest of five, so it fell on me to feed people and get them out the door for school and all those things. And she said, I feel like I robbed you of a childhood and I have no idea how to make restitution for that. So if you'll tell me what I can do to make that right, I'll be willing to do whatever you ask. And I was looking at the road ahead and I started to cry, but just as soon as I started to cry, it, it went away. And I turned to her and I said, it's all right, mom, it's okay. And what was so surprising about that exchange was that it was okay. Like, because we rehearsed that conversation many times when I was growing up. And in my earlier visions, you know, I always exhaled on the cigarette. And I don't even smoke. And I was like, oh, you're damn right. You're sorry. You're the sorriest person I know. <laughs> but from the time that I dreamed scenario to all those conversations to the time we actually had the conversation, the miracle of recovery had taken place. And what's happened as part of my recovery is I've become the man God would have me be. And I like that guy. He's not so bad. I mean, yeah, he's got his faults, but he's nobody's perfect, right? And I am a culmination of all of my experiences. I've stopped labeling them. I used to call them good, bad, ugly, traumatizing, whatever, right? They're just experiences. The truth is they all fit into my kit of spiritual tools and I get to use them, right, to help other alcoholics. They come in dragging their ass behind them like I cannot get sober because of A, B, and C. And I'm like, and you left out D through Z because we have seen it all. And that is the most important tool we have in Alcoholics Anonymous, the principle of identification. When I start telling you I understand what you're saying and then I relate my own experience to you and you realize that we are the same, then you're now interested in a proposed solution, right? So that's why I started this talk by explaining to you we really need to focus on the similarities and not the differences. There's a reason I came up here and I said, my name is Solis, I'm an alcoholic. And I don't come up here and say something like, I'm Solis, I'm a Native American alcoholic. Or I'm Solis, I'm a gay alcoholic. Well, one, because one's a disease and the other one's not. But mostly because <laughs> we don't carry labels. It doesn't matter if you're black or Jewish 
poor or rich, educated or uneducated, none of those things matter. We simply say, I am an alcoholic, because by saying that, I am claiming my seat here and letting you know that I meet the requirement of the third tradition and that I belong. Wow, where else can we go in the world that we walk into a room and say, hey, I belong. Woo! Only in Alcoholics Anonymous. So that's why. I need to wrap up here and I need to tell you um, something else miraculous that happened. So uh, my father has been trying to have a relationship with me into adulthood and I have not allowed him to do that because I still am operating from, you know, you are embarrassed and ashamed of me, right? We, so we, we haven't talked. We, we didn't talk for a long time. When he found out I was leaving California to move for Texas, my sister called me and said, Dad's on his way over to your house. I'm like, Dad's on my Dad never comes to my house. What's he coming to my house for? She goes, he wants to talk to you, so just hear him out. And I'm like, okay. So he knocks on the door. I open the door. I say, you want to come in? He goes, no, why don't you come outside? So I go outside. And he was like, remember that conversation we had like 20 years ago? And I was like, no, what conversation? He's like, you know, where you, you owned up to some things that you had done, harms you thought you might have created? And I was like, yeah, I remember that, my amends. He's like, yeah, yeah, your amends. He goes, I've been thinking about that for 20 years. I thought, like, what courage it must take to own up to people for your part in things. And I've been thinking, I probably owe you an amends. And I was like, really? For what? He's like, do you remember that argument we had when you were 17? I was like, oh, the night you wouldn't let me take the car? I remember that night. Yes, of course I do. <laughs> I got to resent my Rolodex. And he's like, can you step out a little bit more on the sidewalk? He goes, I was wrong that night. I should have let you have that car, and I did not. But I saved it, and here it is. It's a 1979 Camaro with 40,000 miles on it. Wow. It's yours. And I took the keys. I said, thank you. And as soon as he drove away, I slapped a for sale sign on it, and it was gone. Wow. One of my biggest regrets. Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of regrettable things in my life, even in sobriety. Because when my mother passed away two years ago, at the memorial service, my dad was there, and he asked if he could have the microphone. And I gave it to him, and my brothers and sisters looked at me like, what are you doing? Like, they were not close. <laughs> you know, what's he going to say? I was like, I have no idea what he's going to say. But he asked for the microphone, so I gave it to him. So he said, I want to acknowledge that I left Esther with five kids to raise on her own. And I have to say, she did an amazing job, because they all turned out great. And parents aren't supposed to have favorites. They're supposed to love all their children equally. But if I had a favorite, it would be Solis. And they all, my brothers looked at me. <laughs> all three of them, because they were all all-star athletes. They did everything he put them through, every pace he put them through. And he was close to them. And they would go to football games. They would do everything together. I was always left out. And they looked at me like, what is he doing? I was like, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm more surprised than anybody. Shut up. <laughs> and he said, because he has overcome adversity in his life, and I have stood on the sidelines and watched all this time. And he said, and I know it's been hard for him. Um, he said, in 1967, Esther and I had a fight. We'd come in from playing catch, and he was crying like he usually was. And she threw me up against the wall. And she said, you leave him alone. He's going to be whatever kind of boy he's going to be. He's going to grow up to be whatever kind of man he's going to grow up to be. But you're not helping. He goes, and it was really hard for me, but I, I got out of the way. 
so he could become the man he was going to be. I stopped forcing him to play catch or play football and the things that clearly he was not wanting to do. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't know. I didn't know they had that argument in 1967. And if that took 50 years to get that information, 50 years, what else don't I know? And that is why it's so amazing to me that the committee asked me to come all the way from Texas to share all the things with you. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And so my life is incredibly different today. You know, um, I've accepted that there are things that I will never know. And that's great because that requires me to keep an open mind, right? To remain teachable. I'm sponsored because I'm sponsorable. Right? My sponsor, Herb E. from Elgin, Texas, is like this big 10-gallon hat wearing Ford F-250 gun rack in the back driving alcoholic. And everyone's like, Herb's your sponsor? Because <laughs> you're a little delicate. And I was like, yes, because Herb gets me. Herb gets me. I'd spoken at nothing but at gay conferences for 25 years. And then I finally get a call from a mainstream conference. And they said, will you come speak? I'm like, in Midland, Odessa? I was like, how did you find me? And they were like, oh, we called Citywide. And they said that you were a good speaker. And I was like, did they send you a CD? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, did you listen to it? <laughs> and he said, yeah. And I said, you know, that's who I'm bringing. I'm not going to bring anybody else. He said, yeah, we know. I said, I don't want to be rude. I really, I, I don't want to be rude. But from what I know about your fellowship, it's predominantly religious people and oil workers. So he goes, yep, that's us. And I said, and you think that my message would resonate? He said, I think we've never heard that message, and that's half the problem. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to share my message whenever I'm asked, wherever I'm asked, because I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in good standing, and that means I belong. And you all have gone to great lengths this weekend to make me feel like I belong, and that I will always be forever grateful to you for. So um, my hope is that you find um, the love and fellowship we've all been privileged to enjoy, and that remember that your Heavenly Father will never let you down. Thank you.